This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of the four authors of Why Don't Women Rule the World? Understanding Women's Civic and Political Choices. This book was published in 2019 by Sage CQ Press and is written by Cherie Strong, Lori Poloni Stottinger, Shannon Jenkins, and Candice Sportball. Today, I'm joined by Sheree and Lori to talk about why don't women rule the world, which is a super good question. And this is an excellent book that provides some really useful insights and um, activities uh, to sort of get us thinking about this very interesting question. So um, I'd like to welcome Sheree and Lori to our um, podcast and ask them to tell us a little about themselves and the other two authors as well as how they came to this project. Hello. Hi. Hi. So I guess I'll, I'll start. I'm Cherie Strawn. I'm at Central Michigan University. I do research and teach women in politics. And in the past, I've been director of women and gender studies and affiliated with women and gender studies. So I think that shaped the way that I was teaching that class and the way that I was approaching that work maybe slightly differently than um, than most political scientists or other political scientists. And I was doing a lot of work to uh, to re-envision how I taught that class and having to rely on a lot of outside materials and, and building modules and readings and assignments that, that weren't covered by any of the books. And so when I started thinking about, well, it's actually approached by an editor um, from CQ about how to incorporate that into a textbook, I knew it wasn't a project that I could I couldn't do everything that I needed to do or wanted to do on my own. And that's when I reached out to um, to Shannon, um, who is an Americanist, but then also Lori, who is a comparativist. And then Lori reached out to Candace. So I'll let Lori tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I'm Lori Plony Stoudinger. I am at Northern Arizona University. Um, my background is in comparative politics, international relations, a lot of my more recent work has been on women and political violence. I'm also the associate dean um, in social and behavioral sciences at NAU right now. Um, so when Sheree came with this idea, we one of the things that we thought was missing in previous books was um, more of a comparative focus or something that would hook in people who are more trained in comparative politics or give our students just a better situation of how women in politics works in a worldwide setting. And so Cherie reached out to me, and that was sort of part of my job in this, was to um, provide some of those comparative elements. Candace and I have co-published a lot together. Most all um, my women in violence work has been done with Candace. And so then I reached out and pulled in Candace. And so we were there to sort of balance out and provide a little bit more of the comparative um, aspects in the book because that's the way in which we teach and the way in which we think. And then Sheree and Shannon um, were there for more of the Americanist side. And the book itself is really useful and important in taking up not just the sort of perspective with regard to women in politics in the United States, but also presenting a comparative perspective. Um, and the book throughout has these interesting boxes um, where you as authors supply sort of little snapshots into relevant kind of examples with regard to this question of women in politics. But I wanted to take you 
before we get to the layout of the book, I wanted to take you just into this question. Why don't women rule the world? Um, and the research that you've provided in this um, 10 chapter book about this particular question and how this became the driving question for the book. Sure. When I was when I was starting to think about how to re-envision this class, you know, after many years of, of teaching it and pulling together materials, one of the things that I started to do because I was so frustrated was to feel like we have to start much earlier and introduce the concept or the history, not the concept, but the history of patriarchy. And that affected women, not just in the United States, but that feeds our notion of intersectionality and, and, and the need for a comparative focus as well because it, patriarchy spread with with the rise of agriculture and spread across the globe with agriculture. And I think that if you don't start with the history, that deep history of patriarchy, and that we're still grappling with that, and that has a big impact on why women haven't been involved in structuring the world, um, you know, women haven't been in, allowed to rise to leadership positions for about 7,000 years. Um, if you don't start there and you start with traditional political science research, you'll see all sorts of uh, sex-based differences in attitudes and behavior and, and choices. And that feeds gender essentialism, the notion that there's something biological or intrinsically different about men and women that isn't a result of this hangover effect from, from patriarchy. So that was, you know, that's where I was starting from with my students and having to pull everything that's in the first chapter pretty much together um, in, in the, uh, you know, using traditional political science books. So that is sort of where that question emerged as we were thinking about making that the introduction and then using that to structure the rest of the book. Yeah, and the title itself, I, I to add to that, the title itself is sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek um, approach to this, right? So the idea is that feminists don't really want to rule the world. And so this was, it's, it's sort of a little ironic play um, in the title itself to be provocative. But then we also go through and explain that that's not the goal of feminists in the first place, right? And I was, I was actually at a meeting yesterday and somebody saw the book cover and said, he says, why don't women rule the world? You're probably going to tell me men, right? And I said, well, no, you know, it's a little deeper than that. Um, and it goes back to patriarchal structures. And so we wanted to get away from this sort of essentialist thinking, but also be provocative. Um, in the title. And in the introductory chapter, you do sort of become anthropologists um, in talking about not only sort of this, the understanding of patriarchy and forms of oppression of different groups, but in terms of sort of uh, un unpacking how we got to patriarchy. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, Sherry, you, you started to talk about how that was often absent from the discussions of women in politics in a lot of the literature. Sure. And I did have to go to other disciplines to get that. And that, that came from the interdisciplinary work of women and gender studies. So when women and gender studies first started to emerge as a separate discipline about 30 years ago, there weren't enough women in the social sciences to have a unit, right, to have a department. So they had, there weren't enough to publish in journals, right, about these feminist issues. So they had to be interdisciplinary. Um, but I make the point that I have to go back to that literature and be interdisciplinary in setting up that intro chapter because, uh, you know, one of the lines from the book is that 
it's really hard to dismantle a system of oppression if you don't understand how and why it was put in place in the first place. And and we do take that seriously. I think I think a lot of political scientists might not have grappled with this before because we really embrace the science part of our title and run away with, you know, run away from anything that we think might make us look normative. And we're upfront about it. You know, patriarchy is a thing. It's been here for 7,000 years. And we would actually really like, you know, for the benefit, not just of women, but for everyone who would, who would be better off in an egalitarian world, um, we would like to see it go away. <laughs> so, so we grappled with that in a way that I think that is more upfront than, than traditional political science would have. And Lori, did you want to add anything to that? No, I mean, I think she, she covered everything. And I, I think that's probably, we talked about this. So I think one thing we didn't mention is when um, we were setting down and sketching out the book, we actually, Sheree and I were at the first women's march um, in DC and we um, took a break from some of our observations of the march and went into a cafe and sat down and sketched out what the book would look like. And we intentionally talked about that it needed to start from this point. And I think, um, and we also talked about in our discipline, how we see sometimes we just become so siloed that I don't, we, it, we overlook sort of the the contributions that we can get from other disciplines. And that's to the detriment of our full understanding of a topic and then also to the detriment of our students. And and what I really found useful in this book, because it is, it is both a, a book for academics and for scholars, but it's also obviously pitched as a kind of a textbook um, to be used in classes. And so you do have throughout, and I, as I said already, these, these text boxes, can you talk a little bit about how you decided to have these sort of inserted, um, not necessarily case studies, but to some degree analysis and information, everything from political theorists, um, discussing, uh, an understanding of patriarchy and, and, other forms of political theory, but in terms of history, in terms of sociology um, and activism, can you talk a little bit about these these really enlightening sort of boxes of interesting analysis and information? So I think part of the initial impulse to have text boxes was to make sure that we were covering everything that we felt needed to be included so that if we were if we were making a point to always have a comparative text box in every chapter or always making sure to have a policy text box in every chapter that um you know we would make sure not to overlook those things it was very important to us to weave intersectionality not just you know not just to introduce that concept at the very beginning but to weave those kinds of examples through the entire book and so i think initially the the notion of these set aside boxes was to make sure that we wouldn't overlook and skip. You know, there's so much content to cover. And how do you make sure that you set aside and go, hey, we're going to make sure we always come back to those, you know, those core features that we need to make sure are here and that they're highlighted. Um, and so, and then we, then we use them a little bit more frequently after, you know, it's nice to have those like, you know, this, maybe this content, like about bell hooks in chapter one, like, I don't know how to quite fit it into the, into the text of the, the full paragraphs, but I really want people to know who bell hooks was and what her arguments were. And I want to highlight that. And so it became a nice way to, to highlight things that we thought were important and set them aside. Lori. Yeah, I, I really learned from them. Yeah. And I think partly, um, 
speaking with the policy text boxes, that actually, we had policy weaved in to the chapters and in, in sort of the original iteration of the book. And some of the reviewers, I think some in some women in politics textbooks, people are used to seeing it written sort of in a policy-driven way, and ours wasn't. And so we, and so the policies sort of got lost in there. So what, what are the policy implications of some of the concepts we were talking about in each of the chapters? And uh, this came through from a couple of the reviewers. And so we made it really intentional that we wanted to put those policies sort of up front and center so that it was really clear the policy implications and policies that are connected and sort of drawing those, connecting those dots and drawing those lines for people between the concepts to the policies. Um, also, it can, like Sheree said, it can get really busy in a chapter if you're trying to weave in. We do weave in a lot of um, comparative ideas and comparative examples into the main body of the text, but really trying to highlight and set aside um, some of these ideas and the way that some of these concepts play out in places other than the United States. And so that people can really focus on them. That's why we wanted the comparative boxes to be sort of front and center in the book as well, to sort of highlight them a little bit more. And so you go through in the book and you, you do, you know, you have the historical chapters, you integrate um, aspects of political theory early on. You have these discussions about um, political ambition, which is again, something that we often talk about with regard to gender and politics, particularly women in politics. And then you go through some of the more traditional discussions of, you know, women in the House, women in the Senate, um, women running for president or not running for president, um, and and so forth. And so in the in the sort of scheme of the book, what was the intention and aim in terms of um, piecing out these different aspects um, of understanding women in politics in these different ways? Well, well, we needed to cover, you know, political science has a lot to offer for our understanding. And, you know, we've developed a standalone course about gender and politics in our discipline for a good reason, because there is so much substantive content. And we did want to make sure that was covered and to make sure that there was enough here for someone to use it as a standalone textbook. Um, but I'm driven a lot by those early experiences in my career where I was interdisciplinary in women and gender studies and feminist pedagogy that you're sort of immersed in in that unit um, or in that work, it you know indicates that you would never teach people that there's a problem without teaching them how to fix it. There's sort of an activist component embedded in feminist pedagogy that is you're socialized to embrace. So it was really hard for me to Political science is really good at pointing out what all the problems are, right? Oh, right. But we're maybe not so good about teaching people how to fix them. Again, I think we shy and run away from anything that 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 we feel as might detract from that label as scientist, right? So we we would run away from teaching our students how to fix it. And so, but I said, look, look at all of this literature on what cultivates political ambition. Look at all of the things that we know from the women in leadership or women in communication literature about good coping mechanisms or strategies that, that bolster confidence. And, and so that pulling that in and putting it into those ambition activities at the end, um, that was something I was doing in my classes and coming up with all those activities and projects on my own. Um, and I thought, I'm putting all this work into this. Let's put it in the book and share it so that other people can also adopt uh, a little bit of more of that activist pedagogy approach. I'm not 
not trying to tell students what they what they should do or what they have to do, but just that, to make sure that they have the skill sets and the confidence and the efficacy um, to to move into that realm if that's what you know if that's what they want to do. Yeah, and in thinking about the book and in thinking of structuring it, um, so to, to add to what Sheree said. We wanted to include a lot of those elements that we had seen missing in previous women in politics textbooks or that we thought was missing sort of from the political science um, arena. But at the same time, we didn't want to be, you know, so far afield that people couldn't use this if they're using it to teach a class. And so um, we also wanted to structure it in such a way that it would fit with most people's um, syllabi. And so I think that the way all four of the authors have taught um, the class is this this fits with that. Um, and it also played to our different strengths. So when we were writing, we took um, leads on different chapters um, based upon where our strengths were um, lie. So that that helped as well. And I, I did want to get into a little bit more detail with regard to these ambition activities, which I found really fascinating. They're at the end of each chapter. Um, and, and again, they sort of, they're not necessarily pointing in a particular direction for students, but it's a way for students to think, um, about themselves in context of what they're learning, which is often, you know, what I try to do in my American politics classes and ask the students to be citizens, um, and understand what we're learning in context of being citizens, um, and so you're doing a sort of similar thing with regard to, you know, if you are a woman reading this textbook, what are you learning and how do you think about that in context of yourself? So can you talk a little bit about these activities? Sheree, you said you had been developing them in your class in general. Um, and so how did they sort of move from that to the book? Yeah, we just wanted to make sure that you know, if we're writing a book that we're grappling with why the world is not egalitarian or, you know, why women haven't had a greater role in in the leadership opportunities in the world the way it is currently structured, that if people wanted to step in and, and, and try to make a difference or if they wanted to step in and pursue political life um, or, or understand why maybe why women don't pursue leadership positions in public life, um, that that they would have experiences, personal experiences that would help respond to some of those problems. Um, and so I had been just just gathering anytime I read literature, you know, Lawless and Fox have some suggestions and some of their that emerge from some of their findings, like women have to be asked multiple times uh, to run for office. And it it helps if women can frame running for office or serving as helping other people because we're so socialized that we need to be communal and other oriented. So we had students interview each other and then go home and write a letter, right? Telling the other student how all of your experiences qualify you to run for office and how the things, the policies that would help people that you care about are probably not going to get the same attention from someone else as they would from you. You know, have them tell each other those sorts of uh, stories because we know from the literature that having that experience of having a peer communicate that to you actually bolsters political ambition, right? Or um, in the in the legislative chapter, we had read about how women in the Obama administration practiced Amplify, and it helped them have voice in committee meetings, and it helped them have voice um, in you know the kinds of deliberative processes that you would experience in in the legislature, and so we have them actually practice that instead of just reading about it. So it's all grounded in 
um, all of the things that we did for ambition activities are grounded in what what social science literature is telling us is effective at bolstering ambition and efficacy. Yeah, and we and we knew right. So we we talk about um, in chapter four in the book. Actually, we talk about it throughout, but we mainly focus on it in chapter four. We know that political ambition drops um, among girls and women in late high school, early college. And so this was another thing we talked about when we were there at the Women's March. We know this, right? So why not try to be intentional about embedding activities into a book that talks about women in politics and is centered around this idea um, of political ambition and an ambition gap? Why not try to be very upfront and purposeful and integrate those kind of activities into a book to try to ameliorate um, some of these issues and see if it makes a difference um, for our students. So, if the, you know, they think of themselves differently at the end of the semester or the beginning or, or women in general, right? I don't think this is just a textbook for classes, but I think anybody interested in the topic could also um, go through and think about some of these activities. And one thing we did to make sure uh, because none of us are, you know, in college age anymore, is Candace had an intern who went through all of the ambition activities, um, read, thought about them, tried to do them, and then gave us comments and insights as to how people her age, um, sort of a typical college age student, would think about and react. And so we we did some modifying and tweaking based upon um, some of that feedback as well, and then and also tested all of these um, on you know actual college age students. And and so I wanted to also ask you about the fact that this is a purposefully sort of com- um, at least thoughtfully t- attempting to do comparative understandings. Um, and and at the same time, you know, you say in the introduction, and you say in the preface that, you know, it's, it's pitched to classrooms in the United States, um, and, and individuals in the United States, but it's not specifically American government. Can you, um, both talk a little bit more about how you were able to integrate the comparative perspectives, um, and how that helped to essentially, um, amplify some of the discussion within all the chapters in the book? why I knew I needed Lori's <laughs> Lori and Candace's help um, was that it's so it's sometimes it's so hard to see problems in your own culture, problems in your own government and your own practices. And, and we have, you know, we put America on a pedestal sometimes and we set ourselves out as, as the standard bearer. And we wanted students to realize that, you know, our institutional structures might not always be the best for promoting gender equality, or there might be um, there might be costs and um, costs and benefits of structuring things in different ways. Uh, so I knew that I couldn't, I'll let Lori speak more to that because I knew that this was something that I really wanted to be in the book, but I knew it was something that I just didn't have the the bandwidth to do on my own. Yeah. And I guess for Candace and I, this way, because it was how we were trained, this way of thinking is the way, just the way in which we think, right? So um and in my experience with students is that, and I think people in general in working with the, I do a lot of work with the community as well. And um, in my experience with that is that people often can understand their own system better, or if you are comparing it with other systems, 
right? Or they can understand other systems better if you compare it back to the U.S. And so um, that was the impetus behind it. And then part of the reason, but I one of the things I said before is that um, it is pitched at a U.S. audience, but we don't want students to think of themselves as sort of isolated or the U.S. is particularly special. Um, that these ideas of patriarchy, that that ideas about women in leadership positions um, transcend sort of many countries around the world. And we also have examples of cultures where that's not the case, right? Or where things are working differently than the U.S. And so that our way is not the only way to do things. Um, and that when we can highlight some of these other comparative examples, we can understand ourselves better, but we can also see opportunities for other ways of organizing. And and I wanted to to now ask you one of my favorite questions to ask authors on the podcast. This, again, these are really um, deep and complicated chapters that bring in a whole bunch of different perspectives. But I want to know, as you put the book together, as you were writing it and doing the research, what was most surprising as you, you know, sort of were learning from each other and researching? Most surprising. I, I was surprised at how it sounds so intimidating to write a book. Um, <laughs> and I was surprised at how we all just, we all just sat down and did it. It didn't feel like work a, a lot of times, you know, it felt like, you know, grappling. So you read through and you develop a, a deeper understanding of, you know, something you've been teaching for a while, but you're reading a little bit deeper or more broadly, or you're making connections to other countries that, you know, you, then you suddenly, for me at least would realize, you know, how the same patriarchal influences have played out in another place in a slightly different way, you know, but still, but still damaging to women. Um, and, and then to me, the, the impetus was, I, I want to tell people, I want to share this. I want people to know, you know, how would I communicate this to my students? So when I would sit down to write my chapters, um, it, it didn't feel like work. It felt like I was, you know, telling a story that needed to be told. So it was a lot less intimidating. It was a lot less uh, work and, and hard and difficult labor to write the book than I maybe set it up to be. Yeah. And I think we even say in there in the um, preface that it was actually, we had a lot of fun. I mean, it was, I mean, there were times when it wasn't right. When you're copy editing and you're like, get to these to me by three o'clock today. But for the most part, it was a lot of fun um, writing the book. And I think book writing is fun. So I don't know if that was so surprising to me, but uh, maybe be surprising to other people that think, you know, it doesn't, it didn't feel like work. It was something, and especially being in administration, it was actually kind of like a little vacation for me to be able to take time um, when I was able to set aside time and write. Um, I think one of the other things for me, and I don't know that it was surprising because I think I knew this, but as much as interesting. So um, I took the lead on some of the text boxes related to trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Um, and it was interesting to me to see sort of how this was playing out um, locally in some activist circles um, in the United States, how we see this idea playing out um, around the world. And then also doing some interviews with um, people of older generations and sort of how they approach their feminism um, and their sort of women-only spaces and how now those are being seen sort of as an exclusionary um, 
space. It, it, that was just, it was interesting to me to see those different perspectives sort of generationally. And, and, and that was one of my curiosities. I was having a discussion recently with some colleagues about, you know, is feminism still a bad word? For a long time it was. Um, and now, you know, Beyonce um, is a feminist uh, and people have t-shirts that say feminist. Um, and a lot of the book is about, you know, sort of understanding different aspects of feminism as well. Um, and how that plays into understanding politics. Um, so where is feminism given the work that you did for this book? Always in, always in progress. <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't, we've always got to, you know, and, and their feminism was criticized for good reasons. And we try to grapple with that. I mean, that's another thing I think that was missing from some of our older uh, textbooks in on women in politics in the United States was, you know, really grappling with the history of racism and exclusionary politics um, that that took place because the American, you know, the American history, the American culture had been an exclusionary place, you know, that, that grappled with all of that discrimination. And so if feminism is going to stay relevant, it, it has to grow and change and respond. You know, we have to all read bell hooks um, and think about feminism has to be for everyone or it's for no one. And really trying to um, make that real, you know, femini- fe- feminism and feminists have to have to grapple with themselves, have to grapple with their movements, have to grapple with their organizations, and and have to find a way to make that, you know, walk the walk the talk. Um, and I and I wanted to ask also about um, the men in terms of the book itself. Um, and I mean, it is a book about women in politics. It's about feminism. Um, but one of the sort of questions that it's often posed is, um, about the role of men in these sort of dynamics. And so what did the research and what do you sketch out in the book in terms of, um, not only binary sort of um, sexual components, but um, with regard to men in the movements. So we grapple, I think, the most with that in the first chapter and in the last chapter, which were chapters that I took the lead on. And, you know, we, we try to point out up front in the intro that patriarchy and, and binary roles, you know, reinforced exclusionary binary roles for, you know, men go here, women go here, and you have to be masculine and feminine are bad for everyone. And they're not really, you know, they're, they're not really helpful for men either. Men, men get a bump and a reward for fulfilling those masculine roles. They get rewarded for it, but it comes at a painful cost of sacrificing being a three-dimensional person. And so we, we try to point out up front in that connection to that conversation around bell hooks and some work by, um, Alan Johnson, a sociologist named Alan Johnson, who wrote The Gender Knot, um, you know, to bring those into conversation that, that this is, we'd be, all would be better off if we lived in a more egalitarian world. And then we try to show that ripping out, you know, any, any form of hierarchy or oppression that you try to focus on is, is good. And we need to remember that and try to link the fact that feminist activism at earlier stages. So we point out in the intro chapter, feminist activism to try to reform marriage at earlier stages 
um, because it was really limiting, the institution of marriage was really limiting for, for women and needed a lot of reform so that women could have uh, access to education and, and freedom. But the work did for marriage, actually, you actually don't know when you're, when you're getting rid of hierarchy and oppression, you may be helping this one demographic group, but, but you can be unlocking something that will fold out in, and, and help us help other people oppose different kinds of oppression decades later. Yeah, and I think um, sort of this ties back with your earlier question, Lily, about where is feminism now? Um, and I think what we're seeing in new waves of feminism and with um, younger generations is feminism isn't just for women, right? Like It's for everybody um, because it is about breaking down these institutions of oppression. Um, and one thing we talk about in the book too, and this is something Candace and I have I've talked a lot about in our other work, and so it comes through in some of the comparative elements in the chapter, is ideas of masculinity, um, ideas of hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculinity, um, and how these these are all interrelated, right, with the, the type of structures that we see, and they're interrelated in with why women don't rule, right? And so um, sort of bringing those to the focus and shedding light upon them will hopefully help understand sort of the larger systems in which we're embedded. And, and so I, of course, want to know what each of you either separately or together are working on next since the book has now been published and is out in the world. All kinds of things. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So together we have, we, we did a national sample survey paid and shipped in, for someone that had a national sample survey right around 2018. And so we have some research on attitudes toward the Me Too movement that we're just now starting to analyze and, and research. And then I'm actually separately working on a different textbook project that repositions um, political behavior instead of intro to studying political behavior that has more of a citizenship flavor. So taking this sort of approach to empowering students and 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 instead of just treating voters as someone that we study, thinking about how do you, what do we know as political scientists to give them back what they need to be informed, active citizens? Awesome. Yeah, well, and Lori? I wrote three books last year. Okay. So I'm um, focused on napping. No. <laughs> <laughs> and actually my job is a full-time administrator, um, but I, in addition to this work with um, Sheree, Candace and I also have a project um, where we're looking at gender and counterterrorism, and we presented some work out of that at um, the European Conference on Politics and Gender and need to do some revision on that. We also have um, a large survey with a couple other authors, Candace and I do, that um, looks at gendered reaction to terrorists. Um, so those are sort of our projects on the horizon in that sort of area of research. Um, and otherwise I think gathering information, taking, um, notes, looking through this election cycle, um, you know, for edition two of why don't women rule the world. And we're also working Shuri and I are working and Candace and Shannon also are working on some, um, smaller pieces, some more popular pieces for, um, monkey cage, possibly some other outlets, um, that take aspects of this book. And, um, put it out from our popular audience. 
Great. So it sounds like um, each of you separately and or possibly again together can come back on the New Books Network when the next publications come out. We would love to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Today I've been joined by Cherie Strawn and Lori Poloni-Stottinger, two of the four authors, including Shannon Jenkins and Candice Ortballs, of Why Don't Women Rule the World? Understanding Women's Civic and Political Choices. And this is published in 2019 by Sage CQ Press. And I assume everybody can get this either at the Sage CQ Press website or other places you buy books. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's a great book to potentially use in women and politics classes or gender and politics classes, as well as to read and learn from. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.